This morning, I want to invite you to open your Bibles back to Titus chapter 2. I felt like we addressed that issue on Mother's Day, on what an older woman is to train a younger woman to be and do. And I think because of the response, maybe it would be helpful if I continued in the Word of God, helping our younger women identify what the Bible so clearly articulates and so clearly addresses in the role of a younger woman and what that woman is to be. Now, I give you a little footnote. I I probably don't have to. Of course, these are not truths that the world is going to esteem, that they're going to abide by, that they're going to build up and articulate in any way, but this is the teaching of the Word of God. Let me just read for you Titus 2, 3 through 5. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. And here's the purpose, that the Word of God may not be dishonored. That is the clear teaching of the Scripture. Now, if you weren't here last week, you're welcome to get that message. All of those are on our website, and you can hear that. But I want to take you back briefly in Titus 1.5, that the purpose is stated there that Paul said, I left you in Crete, he's writing to Titus, so that you, may, that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. He left Titus there in that island. We said parachuted him in that he would appoint elders. That's how churches start. Churches are healthy because there's a godly leadership. It always begins with leadership. The the wise saying goes that everything rises and falls with leadership. That is true. It is true in the life of a church. You don't start a church by trying to market it to the community. You don't market a church because of the impact necessarily to take place in a community, though that would be a, a reason down the road. But you here begin a church, and he told them to appoint elders in every city. Then, of course, in 1, 6 through 16, he speaks of the qualifications of those elders. He gives the overarching quality in one six. if anyone is above reproach. In other words, he's speaking here to the character of a man, uh, because that follows that those are masculine uh, verbs and pronouns and nouns that follow in most of those cases. But he gives that banner of they need to be above reproach. In other words, they need to have a, a blameless life. And so though he gives the prescription of elders, he gives those qualifications of what those elders are to do. And then I brought you down to one sixteen. speaking of the false teachers. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. In other words, they proclaim one thing and live another. And Paul, just so straight, truth of Scripture, says in one sixteen of these false teachers that they're detestable, that they are disobedient, that they are unfit for any, it says, good work. And so he lays out why these elders are important. But then he says this to Titus in one, quite firmly, but as for you, Titus. In other words, Paul's directing this truth to Titus and now, uh, you know, years later to the church. He says, I want you to teach what accords with sound doctrine. I always think that strikes me that he was to be a teacher. There's a lot of things that a pastor could do and should do as some part of his priority, but his main priority is to teach. His main priority of the elder board is to instruct, and he is to teach, it says in 2.1, what accords with healthy doctrine. In other words, healthy teaching. Healthy doctrine leads to healthy families. Healthy families make strong churches. And I would say this, strong, healthy churches penetrate the community 
in which they are living. Now, what consists of that healthy teaching is five key relationships follow. You, I mentioned that last week. Older men in 2-4. Older women in 2-3. Younger women in 2-4 and 5. He speaks to younger men in 2-6 to be sensible. And he speaks in 2-9 to those who are servants or to those who are slaves. And we could say today to those who are employees working for their employers. But the focus that we had beginning last week in the Word of God is the responsibility of the older women to the younger woman. You'll note, look at 2.3. Actually, yeah, in 2.3, it says they are to teach what is good. Now, just stop there for a second. I noticed last week that that teach what is good is not the formal word for teaching. It is put together with a compound word, and it's the teaching of life. It's the teaching of example. It's the ideal of modeling. So older women in our flock, you have a responsibility, and your responsibility is to teach and model and demonstrate for these younger women that were down here on the platform with their new babies that which is good. Now, you say, what do you mean, that which is good? It's explained in the next phrase. Look at it again. Teach what is good. And then in 2.4, and so train the younger women, or to train the young women. That word there for train is, we say train, or in the SB, it's encourage. And if I just put it in a nutshell for you, uh, an older woman is to train a young woman. Train, what does that mean? It means to train them in the area of self-control. That's what the text is getting at. It is the older woman training a younger woman to be sober-minded. Now, who are these older women training? Look again at the text. They're training, as you can see there, the young women. Those are neos in the Greek Those are newly married women. Those are women who are bearing children. Those are women who are are child raising, if you will. In fact, just to encourage you, and maybe this will be an encouragement to you, that could well run through the 40s, I would think, right? Say, how old is a younger woman? Well, she's bearing children. She's raising children. She is new as compared to an older woman. It could well run through the 40s. It could well run into the early 50s. And so you've got this wise, older, godly woman who has born children, raised children, reared children, and possibly in most cases sent them out. They are, if you will, by example and lifestyle to train these younger women. Now the question would be raised, and of course this is the word of God, What does that training consist of? And the answer would be in the text is seven declarations follow on what an older woman is to train a younger woman to be and to do, okay? Now, she is to do that, an older woman with a younger woman, for one expression in this text. Look at it at the end of 2.5. She is to be kind and submissive to 5b, to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled, or that the word of God may not be dishonored. That is the thought. In other words, this is important because we don't want the word of God to be violated. We don't want the word of God to be dishonored. We don't want these young families who dedicated those precious kids today as we dedicated them to in any way dishonor the word of God. So the seven characteristics follow. You need to listen last week maritally. Number one, that older woman is to train a younger woman maritally to love their husband, to phileo love their husband. Number two, maternally, she is to train a younger woman to love her children, to phileo love her husband, to phileo love her children. And then here's the flow of the text. It makes sense to me. That thirdly, and we'll pick up the text here, that mentally, mentally, look at the text again. It says there in verse 
5, it says, to be self-controlled. To be self-controlled, verse 5. In the NASB, and I might even have it that way on the notes, it says to be sensible. To be sensible is to be self-controlled. So young women in this flock, forget what the world says for a moment, okay? This is what the Bible says. You're to love your husband. You're to love your children. You're mentally to be self-controlled or to be sensible. Now, I remind you that it's not just the younger woman that needs to be sensible. If you glance back in Titus 1.8, it says there that an elder is to be hospitable. It says that he is to be in 1.8, a lover of good, comma, he is to be self-controlled. There is the word. So an elder must, by way of qualification, be self-controlled. He must be sensible. But likewise, an older woman is to train a younger woman. It's a very careful, close word with sensible. But she's to, to train her to be sensible. And so an elder, an older woman, train a younger woman. But it's not just the younger woman that needs to be sensible or the elder. Look down in chapter 2, verse 6. Likewise, Paul would say, I want you to urge, in 2.6, the young men to be, what? Self-controlled. It's the same Greek word. He wants the young men to be sensible, is the thoughts. So here, the older woman is to instruct the younger woman to think and live wisely in self-control over their passions, over their desires, but I could even say over their own thought life, okay? The word means self-control. It's interesting, when you think of that word self-control or sensible, it comes from what we call a compound word, and the first part of that word means to be safe and sound, but the second part of that word for self-control is the Greek word mind. It's the Greek word friend, excuse me, and friend means mind. And so an older woman, when you put that together, is to train a younger woman to be of sound mind, to exercise self-control, for a younger woman to put her entire life under the control of sound judgment. So I would hope that you younger women have an older woman that is guiding you in that principle. I may just, by way of contrast, say that an antonym for sensible is the word ignorance, is the word scatterbrained, is the word that Proverbs would use that would describe someone as foolish. So here, this younger woman has her feelings and has her emotions under control. Her feelings do not rule her. And here, this younger woman is to de develop, cultivate self-restraint. <laughs> so opposite of our world. The, the, the godliness of this woman is self-restraint. It's the ideal of moderation in their thinking so that their desires, their passions, are kept under the control of their mind to be self-controlled. The thought is, she's stable. This young woman is not self-consumed, okay? She's not paranoid. She's not freaked out. She is marked by wisdom. She is marked by discretion. She is marked by good judgment, and obviously an elder needs that judgment, and a young man needs that to be marked by that wisdom and discretion as well. Do you want to see a word picture of how this was used? Let me just take you over to the Gospel of Mark for a second. Keep your hand there in uh, Titus, but look over in the Gospel of Mark, and I think you're maybe familiar with this account of the demoniac, of the man who was demon-possessed, and he healed that man who was demon-possessed, and you can see, I mean, this was a horrible situation. It says that he lived among the tombs in 5.1, and 5.3, and no one could 
Uh, it says, bind him in 5.3 of Mark anymore, not even with a chain. <laughs> I mean, this guy's in trouble, right? For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. I mean, he's got a strength beyond human. And believe me, when there's demonic activity in our day, you see at times a superhuman strength. It takes people to hold them down, especially when there's more than one demon. But this guy was breaking these chains, if you will. They couldn't hold him down. He wrestled, verse 4, the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him night and day among the tombs and in the mountains. He was always crying out, and he's cutting himself with stones. I mean, this is an impossible case. And when Jesus saw him from afar, he ran and, and when he saw Jesus, actually, verse 6, he fell down before him. And Mark always wants you to get that. What nobody else understands on who Christ is, the demons do. And he comes running to Christ and he's on his knees, if you will, and crying out, verse 7, with a loud voice, he said, what have I to do What do you have to do with me, Jesus? Isn't this interesting? Son of the Most High God. In other words, the demon knows who he is. I adjure you by God, do not torment me. And he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked, what is your name? And he replied, scary, my name is Legion, for we are many. So inside this man, by way of possession, was a legion, many demons inside him. And he begged earnestly not to send them out to the to the country, and now a great herd was feeding there on the side of him, saying, send us to the pigs and let us enter them. So he gave them permission and so forth, and they rushed down, you know that account, the bank of the sea, and were drowned by the sea. But they came, verse, here's what I want to draw you to, 15. They came to Jesus, and he saw the demon-possessed man and the one who had legion sitting there, here's the word, clothed, and here it is, in his right mind, and they were afraid. The the point being, he was clothed in his right mind. He was sensible. No longer was he under the control of an evil spirit. He's now under the control, if you will, the spirit of God, and he's sitting down and he's clothed in his right mind. That's our word. So maritally, older women teach the younger women to love their husband. Maternally, teach those younger women to love their children. And mentally, for you young ladies, you're to be sensible. In other words, you're not easily panicked. You're not out of control. You're not throwing a fit. You're under control in your right mind. In fact, a young woman without sensibility will not hold her thoughts captive to truth itself. And when this happens, it's easy to believe a lie. It's easy to think depressing thoughts. In other words, it's easy to let your emotions dominate your world. In fact, a sensible young woman needs to be alert to sinful situations A sensible young woman sacrifices immediate pleasures to secure here before us eternal ultimate purposes. So sensibility increases self-control. It increases self-restraint. And you young mamas, this is what you're doing with your children, right? You're teaching them. You're curbing their desire to rule your home and establishing your right to rule your home. And so dad needs to be that, mom needs to be that, and the children need to be brought under control. You say, why is this so important, especially in the book of Titus? Look back in chapter 1. Look at verse 12. There it says that one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That was the culture. That was the one in which they lived, and so here an older woman was to train a younger woman that way. Listen, I would say to all of us, when you think of what 
the gospel does in our life, look over in chapter 2 in verse 12 when it tells us that the gospel, that the grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly possessions, and it says there, and worldly passions, excuse me, and to live, there it is, self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. I mean, whatever the gospel does, one of its most basic things is it brings you to this thought of being self-controlled. You say, well, Scott, where does self-control come from? Where does sensibility come from? It's a fair question. I'm trying to be practical with you. I would say there's a number of things I could say. Number one, it comes, number one, from a, a mind that is saturated with the word of God. In other words, a young man needs to be sensible. A young woman needs to be sensible. It's when you have a mind so soaked in the word of God that that word in your mind and in your heart is going to allow you to be a sensible young woman. And so there's a lot of platitudes that I could give you, but moms, older women, as you train, you're helping younger women saturate their minds with the scripture. Of course, you remember Philippians 4, 8, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. In other words, put your mind and your heart in the scripture. In fact, sensibility is to put your life under the control of the word of God rather than your feelings. In other words, this godly young woman thinks before she acts. And obviously, you know, it's kind of interesting. He gives seven characteristics for the young women here, but he really only gives one to the young men. What should mark a young man's life is that quality as well. But she thinks before she acts. Second Corinthians 10.5, Paul there said, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to what? To the obedience of Jesus Christ. There's a godly young woman. That's who she is. She's under control. She's saturated with the word of God. She reads scripture. She loves scripture. She's got a lot of priorities in her life, a lot of duties that she does, but I would probably say her walk with God is the most important one. And so as we think about our purpose statement that we exist to exalt the Savior, we can't exalt the Savior until we understand the Savior's command. A sensible woman might think, hey, this thought is wrong. Hey, this thought, and I'm only after your thoughts in this way, contradicts God's word. A sensible young woman doesn't let her emotions or feelings control her thinking. They are to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Here is a godly woman. Young men, marry this type of woman who exercises self-control to have one's mind under the control of the Spirit of God. One time, I, I don't remember if I've told you this, I had Elizabeth Elliot. If you guys know Elizabeth Elliot, raise your hand if you know who she is. Okay, a number of you do. She's the godly missionary. Her husband... Jim Elliott was murdered by um, people in the Alka Indians, I think, the Aka Indians. Her husband, Jim, was killed. A, num a number of missionaries were killed and so forth. And uh, he was a godly man. But Elizabeth Elliott went on to produce and write many books. And I would say, women, if you've not read those books, you need to get those books. She just passed away not too many years ago, but uh, she's known all over the globe, and I had the opportunity to have her speak to my college group. She said, Scott, I'd love you to do that. I was in Southern California at the time, and she said, there's only one key here. You, you, you have to come get me in San Diego. I said, well, uh, I don't know if I called her Elizabeth. I, might, uh, I said, hey, we would love to come get you. And so I got one of the interns with me, and we took a car ride from SoCal to San Diego. And about two days later, no, it wasn't that long. You know how the traffic is. We went and picked her up in San Diego. That's where she lived. And so we got her for probably three hours on the way back up north. And 
the car. She's just sitting in the back. She's very proper and, you know, very godly. It's kind of intimidating to be around her to be. I mean, I'm just, we're like, oh, what do we say to her, you know? And uh, I was probably 20-something at the time, you know? And so I, I thought, hey, I'm going to take advantage of this. If we have her sitting right here in the car. I said, I said, uh, Mrs. Elliott, what, what, it might have been Grin at that point. She had remarried. I, I said, there's a young woman in our college ministry. She goes, tell me about her, Scott. I said, well, she's just struggling with this, and she's struggling with obedience here, and she's struggling with just taking direction from leadership. And I begin to give about a five-minute scenario to Elizabeth Elliot about this young woman, and she's struggling with her thoughts, and, you know, she's struggling with her emotions, she's struggling with obsessiveness, and she's just out of control, and I just said, she's struggling, and all she did was, I I saw her in the mirror, she said, struggling, I can still remember saying it, struggling, I said, yeah, struggling, she said, do you mean disobedient, and then it just, there's no more words, And I kind of felt like that kind of ended the conversation. (laughs) She got it, though. We're trying to coach and prod and push and encourage. Probably if Elizabeth Elliot would have just spoke to that woman and said, listen, you're disobedient to the Scripture. In every facet of your life, Maybe we wouldn't have been trying as young leaders to help this young girl who did want, want to submit vertically under God and to anybody else. Listen, I'm just telling you, when you get around a woman, an older woman like that, she can cut through the, the stuff that's there and get straight to the point and call that young woman on the carpet, not rudely. She just listened to me talk, and we're just like, what do we do with this one? And she's like, you mean just disobedient? You know, that's where you're going to get common sense out of a godly woman like that. Young women, do you have an older woman? Have you given an older woman the right to speak into your life that way? Do you listen to an older woman? Older women, I just want to encourage you. You have the right to come alongside and encourage and train our younger women to be sensible, to be filled with the word of God so that your appetites and passions are under the control of sound judgment. So mentally, she's sensible. Can I give you a fourth quality here? Okay. Not only is she mentally sensible, but morally, look back in Titus, morally, she's pure. It's what the Bible says. Look at it in verse 5. She's to be self-controlled or sensible. Verse 5, it says in the next phrase, she's to be pure. It's the Greek word. You don't always have to know that. I don't always have to tell you that, but... It's hognos. Hagios is the word we use for holy or the word we use for pure. Sometimes you could translate this term chaste. Chaste. So here's an older woman. Maritally, I want you to love your husband. Okay? Maternally, I want you to love your kids more than you love outside the home. Thirdly, mentally, I want you to train the younger women to be self-controlled. And fourthly, I want you to take these younger women and morally teach them how to be pure. In the Old Testament, that word was used and it spoke of a freedom from kind of ceremonial defilement is what it meant. And ceremonial, if you will, impurities. But in the New Testament, this concept spoke of moral purity. In other words, it's the word pure. It's free from contamination is the thought. It's, it's a young woman without guile. It's a young woman, the, the word would carry the idea of guiltless or just even the idea of innocence. And certainly in this context, it refers to sexual purity. It refers in this context to marital faithfulness. A young woman is to be pure. She is to be without guile. She is to be undefiled. She's to be dedicated unto God, innocent in her relationship with men. And certainly, if you're a married woman, it means to be a one man woman, is what we want to say. 
Not that she's just married to one man, but that she's exclusively devoted to that man whom she is married to. And for a single woman, she is to be pure. She is to be holy in her dating relationships. You say, well, Scott, how does that work out? And I want to let the older women work this out, but let me just suggest a few things of what pure means. Purity begins, number one, with a focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where purity really starts. You say, Scott, why do you say that? Because rather than looking at Instagram or Facebook, I'm not going to say those things are sinful. Her focus, at least by way of priority, begins with a focus on Jesus Christ. Because it says in 1 John 3 that we shall see him in the future just as he is. And everyone who has this hope, has thus hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, purity begins with a gaze on the Lord Jesus Christ. It begins with a young woman who wants to be more holy than she wants to be with all the Hollywood stuff. Now listen, I guess this weekend did one of those royal couples get married? Okay, they got married. Okay, they got married. The world's going to swoon over that, right? And I'm not saying it's wrong. How many of you got up at four? No, you don't have to show me your hands. You know, people follow that stuff. But here's the heart of a godly woman. She's pure. She's pure. She's pure in heart. She looks unto Jesus Christ. She understands the command of Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. She's watching her heart because whatever dwells in the heart will eventually show up in her life. So I would say at least number one begins with a focus on Christ. Number two, purity is demonstrated in her thought life. Certainly, this is what an older woman is to do. She's to take her back to Philippians. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is what? Pure. In other words, a young, single, newly married mom, it doesn't have to be so young, it could be someone in their 40s. Some of you in your 40s think, I need this older woman. You may. You may still have child rearing to do in the home and child raising, and you need someone to help you in your thought life to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You will be nothing more than your thoughts that enter in your mind. And in your mind, you either put garbage or in your mind, you put the word of God. But here, purity is going to come from a gaze on Christ. And secondly, it's going to be demonstrated in her thought life. Meaning that this is the type of godly young woman, I don't even know how to say this, that isn't filling her mind with romance novels. And I don't say that to be funny. Because this stuff is just captured. You go, every time I'm in the airport, I walk into the bookstore seeing if there's something new. And it's all the same stuff repackaged behind romantic fixation for some because they're looking and longing for something. What's frightening about that is you may not be in a physical affair, but you could be in an emotional affair. And here's the point of scripture is that an older woman is helping this younger woman be pure. And a pure life is developed from a pure mind, and a pure mind is continually washed by the cleansing power of his Holy Spirit in his word. Lisa Hughes, who will be speaking at our women's conference coming up in November, said this, affairs, and she said this to women, both physical and emotional, begin with a romantic thought. Just one thought that leads to another one and another one. And before we even realize it, we may have a committed adultery or fornication in our thoughts. She said any one of us is susceptible to engaging in an emotional affair if we think about someone other than our own Prince Charming. I think it's well said. It could be said to men too. I've had pastors. I said, what happened? He said, I developed an emotional affair with a woman. Think of the number of guys that told me that. I said, what, what were you doing? What were you thinking? I met her at the mall. Why would you ever meet a woman at the mall? And you say, how do we know that he met a woman at a mall? Because his wife hired a detective to take a picture from a distance on him, and he's meeting with a woman at the mall. And he said, Scott, I've never done anything physically, but obviously at that point, that man is not a one-woman man. He may be married to one woman, but he's also 
devoted to someone else. And the same thing with a young woman here. So you've got to be pure in your thought life. You remember that passage in Psalm 119? How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your what? Word. It's the same truth to a young woman, isn't it? It's the same truth. Your word, the psalmist said in 119, I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. So here's this woman who's pure. She's gazing on Christ. She's demonstrating that purity in her thought life. And here, thirdly, it's demonstrated in her speech. I don't know. I'm, I'm just taking where this word purity is used. But when Paul tells the church at Ephesus but sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness. That's not just to men. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but rather let there be giving of thanks. And so purity, at least for an older woman training a younger woman, is in her speech, I would say, and certainly that would be true for an elder and a younger man and so forth. Uh, here's a word for you young ladies and older women training. Let no corrupting talk, Ephesians 4, come out of your mouth, but only such as a word that is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. You say, well, pastor, I just certainly, sometimes what comes out of my mouth to my husband is, is just not healthy. Well... Pray, walk in the Spirit, get an older woman, talk to an older woman if your speech is acceptable to your husband. And maybe I could say, maybe Father's Day is coming. Maybe I'll say it to you men as well. But okay, it's demonstrated in her speech. Fourth, it's demonstrated in her conduct, obviously. Here's an older woman training a younger woman to be pure. Pure in what? Pure in speech and pure in her conduct. I'm thinking of 1 Timothy, excuse me, 1 Peter 3, where it says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct, that's the word, of their wives when they see you're respectful. And the text says, and pure conduct. There it is. Here's purity in conduct, purity in lifestyle. In other words, women, you're walking with the Lord. Listen, the, the world doesn't value this stuff. If I went and preached this at Fresno State, they'd laugh me out of the classroom. But I'm telling you as our church here, this is what the Lord esteems. Amen. This is so that the word of God may not be dishonored. So here is the heart of a young woman She's, her conduct is pure. It's respectful. It's purity in conduct, purity in lifestyle. In fact, back to Ephesians 5.3, when it says sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. So here is the heart of a young woman. Paul says to us in general in 1 Corinthians to flee immorality. Flee it. You know, as a pastor, I have opportunity to counsel people. And one time, not in this church, I always have to be careful that I'm careful with you, but I counseled a young woman and her husband many years ago, and she, I said, I just, I have to know, did was a, there was impurity in the relationship, and I said to her, I said, just asking, was this man pursuing you? And was, she goes, oh, no, Scott. She goes, it was me pursuing him. And I thought, she needs, men need, she needs to flee immorality. Paul said in... 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful, what? Lust. Do you know how much Facebook has lent to the dissolve of marriage? People following back up old context, old high school stuff. Here's the heart of a young woman. She's pure, okay? 
Paul even said to flee idolatry in 1 Corinthians 10, 14. And the word flee carries the idea of being a fugitive and running for your life. Young women, listen. We live in a wicked world. Some of you work. I'll say something about that in a moment. You're even underneath men at work, which makes it difficult. And here you need to be pure. Last one here. Purity is demonstrated in her dress. In her dress, obviously, uh, right? She's, she's adorning herself with respectable apparel, with modesty, with self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. In other words, purity goes from conduct Speech, does it not? Purity of life here to purity of dress. It extends to every facet of your life, your walk with Christ, your relationship with men, your thoughts, your speech, your behavior, your dress. Now listen, I'm not here just giving you a system of do's and don'ts. All of this comes out of the graciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ who redeemed you women who, who redeemed you, and he has a path for you. He's got a pattern for you. He, he says, this is the path. Here's the pattern. I, I want you to walk in it. But there's a fifth and final one. I'm going to call it managerially, okay? We'll stay with our alliteration. We don't have to. But managerially, I thought it worked. Look, look what it says in 2.5. She's self-controlled. She's pure, Right? And she's managerially working at home. Now let me just make a comment on this. Certainly the society isn't going to view this. But this is the word of God, beloved. It says that a young woman is to be a worker at home. Unless you're Vivian Gornick. Just, I spare you of much, but... She's a feminist author, and this is typical. She says, being a housewife, quote, is an illegitimate profession. And she went on to say in an article that the heart of radical feminism is to change that. We know that. We know that. But Scripture says, and I'm with you, you're reading your Bible with me, it says that she's a worker at home is what it says. She's working at home. Now, what does that mean, working at home? Well, I mean when I say what does that mean, I'm not trying to give you the, the, the pragmatics of it. I always just ask what does it mean, <laughs> like biblically. This is the inspired word of God. This is the inerrant word of God. This is the infallible word of God. What does it mean? It's a compound word. Okay, It just comes from two Greek words. And the first word, not hard, okay, is oikos. And it means house. Lock that one in. And the second word is the word ergon. And it just means work. So, shazam. She is a worker at home. She is working at home. She works. Now, I do want to emphasize this. She works at home. Pretty simple. She's not just home. I think I want to say that. But she's working at home. Now that word work is interesting. Ergon. It doesn't just refer to work in general. It refers actually in the scripture to a particular job or employment. In fact, it's interesting that Jesus used that word in John 4, 34, when he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In other words, God the Father gave God the Son a task and it was to accomplish his work. Later in the high priestly prayer in John 17, 4, it says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished, past tense, the work that you gave me to do. So it's a particular job. Epaphroditus in the book of Philippians 2 nearly died, it says there, for the work of Christ. Okay? So here it is. She makes her home her domain. She organizes it. She orders it. The home is her castle. She is not making a name for herself in the marketplace She's making, if you will, her family 
the main priority of her life. In other words, the home is the place of her employment. It's the place of her divinely assigned job. She has a specific task in it. She works at home. Think of, at that point, the Proverbs 31 woman. You say, but Scott, she worked in her home and outside of her home. Yes, she worked inside her home and she worked outside of the home, but the work outside of the home went to benefit the inside of her home. So here, let me say it this way, a young woman never neglects her duty in the home to accomplish something outside of the home. Whether that be recreational, whether that be stuff, stuff just because you want to have a double income, not saying that in all cases that's wrong, but she's not working outside recreational for stuff, even for ministry or the ideal of work outside. Now listen, there may be seasons of time where a woman in a particular circumstance may need to work, i.e. in the case of a single spouse. I understand that. It may be that a woman in a divorced background needs to work. I understand that. I just want you to know my heart goes out to you. We understand that. There's some, sim- some unique circumstances. Some of you, I get this, may work part-time. You may work even full-time outside of your home. But listen, beloved, Paul's first priority, if I said it that way, is the home. In fact, let me ask you a question. How many hours out of the home would you consider it to be a distraction to the home? It's hard to answer that question. How many hours away from the home make it impossible to obey this command? Listen, some of you may say that I work in the community and Scott, I'm at home with my family and I'm still focused on my home. Okay, understand that. However, is it still possible, I'm asking, to love your husband and your children and be a worker in the home and a partner in the accounting firm working 70 hours a week? At what point do you begin to sacrifice this imperative? Can you work 60, 70 hours a week and keep this commandment from the scripture and the ideal model from the Lord? Listen, when the women's liberation movement, there's much to say, but let me say this, sought to deny God and eliminate women from the bearing of children and the caring for them, in reality, they enslave women, I believe, to a greater difficulty, that of working seven to five while still seeking to love their husband, children, and home. And I would say that in some ways it's become catastrophic to the home. Listen, let let me affirm this. I would submit to you that far from being enslaving, the care of a woman's home, the care for her husband, the care for her children, albeit self-sacrificial and exhausting, is the most joyous and liberating and rewarding work for a Christian married woman. That is to be her priority. So I'm not here to say, don't, don't, don't think I'm saying this, that it's a sin for every woman in every circumstance to work outside the home, but I would say it could prevent some of you from obeying these commands. Now, what's going to be hard about that statement is some of you are, this is a little tough to swallow, just in general, because you work and you've worked all your life and with your husband, and you need to, it's going to be hard to hear that. There's going to be some people on the other side who would say, oh no, it's a sin at all to be working in any way outside of the home. And I, that would be tough to prove from the scripture and certainly Proverbs 31. So I'm not saying it's sin in every situation for every woman, but it could prevent some of you from obeying the command of scripture. Let me say, if you do work, okay, do you love your work? Or do you love your husband more? And do you love your children more? And do you love your home more? 
What's difficult about this quality is it really becomes an issue of the heart, doesn't it? It becomes an issue of the heart. you got to consider two questions in light of this priority from God. Number one, this, why are you working outside the home? Why? Motive is crucial in that. And two, can you truly fulfill your responsibilities at home and to your family while you're also working outside of the home? Can you do it? You, you may say, Scott, I can do it. I drop my kids off, but I'm home at, at whatever time, and I'm focused, and maybe you would, but you have to answer those questions. In fact, Proverbs 31 provides a window into the marriage of a keeper at home. You know, in the Bible, it says there in Proverbs 31, the heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good, not evil, all the days of her life. In other words, a worker at home faithfully makes her husband a priority, okay? Whatever he entrusts to her, his heart, the running of the house, the raising of the children, the finances, it says that she seeks to guard and care for to, care for, to the best of her ability, She works to build up the family and the home rather than tear them down. Her work outside the home is on behalf of her home. So listen, at some point, older women, you're training the younger women to do this. There's some of you in a difficult situation here. There's some of you whose husband um, is making you work. And you're probably going to shed tears while I'm preaching this. And this may be hard, but listen, I'm not going to skip it. Not going to skip it for you. Okay, this may be hard. Young men, you've got to make up your mind where the priorities are in your home. And though I'm not saying it's impossible, you've got to be careful that you don't extend her beyond what would be right and holy. This is a difficult verse. You need to pray over that, okay? I like the woman who was in search of a daycare for her daughter, okay? She wanted to find a daycare. She took an ad out in the local paper, And here's what she said. She said, my carefully worded advertisement for childcare, literally, she said, came back to haunt me. I wanted someone who would encourage my children's creativity, take them on interesting outings, answering all their little questions, and rock them to sleep. I wanted someone who would be part of the family. Painfully, after writing uh, advertisement after advertisement, I came to the stunning realization that the person I was looking for was right under my nose. I had been desperately trying to hire me, she said. Older women train the younger women maritally to love, love their husband, maternally love their children, mentally to be self-controlled, morally to be pure, managerially to be a worker at home. Number six, to be miraculously kind. And we're out of time. We'll pick that up next time, okay? 